0: The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician.
1: Hello and welcome, thank you for joining us. I'm John Shin from Mass General Hospital in Boston. I'm here with my colleagues.
0: I'm Josh Pat from Carolina's Medical Center and Levine Cancer Institute in
2: Charlotte, North Carolina. And Rory Goodwin uh, at Duke University, uh, Director of Spinal Oncology.
1: Today, as uh, part of the section on spine oncology, we're going to discuss collaboration with medical oncology and also discuss the impact of evolving therapeutic options in systemic therapies for cancer. So welcome and thanks for joining us. So Joshua, I thought we could lead off with asking you, how do you prepare patients for surgery and how do you decide whether to take someone to the operating room, someone who has metastatic cancer to the spine?
0: Yeah, I think the most important thing in looking at and making that decision about whether it's time for surgery or not, um, I, I guess the, the simplest cases are the one where somebody presents with profound neurologic deficits. You know, that's sort of a, an easier answer in terms of what your answer, what your options may be. Um, but the more complicated patient is a patient who doesn't have that. They have a, a metastasis in their spine identified. It is in that intermediate um, instability. Um, Sort of framework. So I think one of the things you can use, you know, focusing on how do we collaborate with our colleagues in a cancer center, is uh, to, to present at a tumor board. Look at the patient's overall status. Look at what, um, what therapies they have been on. Are they newly diagnosed and have excellent treatment options? Are they a recalcitrant, recurrent tumor that has been through multiple lines of therapy? who might not be expected to have a a good response or great response even to to medical therapy. So I think really incorporating the medical oncology team is is really essential. And if you review the NCCN guidelines in any tumor type, um, one of the first steps is review with a multidisciplinary tumor board. So I think that that's really germane to what we do as well.
2: I was just going to ask, like, you know, what are your thresholds that you use? You know, you mentioned the neurologic uh, deficit is kind of an easy one. But I, I think that there are some times when patients kind of fall into that, you know, intermediate category where they may be, in, you know, an Asia D, let's say, you know, some mild weakness or whatnot. And I think, uh, you know, I've seen different ways that people kind of approach that patient population different from somebody who's just completely out and paralyzed.
0: Yeah, I think that um, to me, I really look at that patient and try and assess what are their symptoms. Um, one of the things I probably let guide my decisions the most is stability, mm-hmm. um, and obviously we have lots of different um, grading systems for evaluating stability. Um, but to me, I think one of the one of the best clinical assessments of stability. Is just ability to be comfortable with upright positioning. Mm-hmm. So if a patient can sit up and stand up for X-rays, that's a different patient than the patient who, you know, is fine when they're supine but literally can't stand up because of pain and instability, not just neurologic issues.
2: Yeah, I agree with that.
1: That's a great point, and I, I think going back to what you mentioned earlier about the multidisciplinary nature of the conversation with the other specialists, I'm just curious. Are there specific things that you typically ask your medical oncologist or that you want to know from them when you're thinking about taking these patients to surgery? You know, there are a lot of things that we consider, their neurological status, the stability, but when you're thinking about the extent of cancer or their condition, is there something specifically that you often typically in your day-to-day practice would ask them?
0: So, I mean, the classic answer to that is going to be overall prognosis. Do they have a prognosis of three months or more as a, you know, a number we use historically? I think that there's you know, pluses and minuses to sticking to that number, um, but really more so than that, because frankly, that's a guess a lot of the time, um, an educated guess, but really yeah, still a guess. Yeah. Um, is really looking at what medicines are the people on are they on things that are going to interfere with? Um, is it an angiogenesis inhibitor? That's actually gonna inhibit um, Healing of my the wound forget about bone fusion. Can I even get the wound to heal? Have they finished radiation within the last three weeks? You know, those are some of the things that may drive me Away from an immediate operation um, That I kind of rely on them to, to help me with
2: yeah, I, I was gonna say um, similar you know, I found that one of the things that I like to try to clarify is what line of therapy that they're actually on in their overall disease course. And I think going back to your point about prognosis, it's it's a good way of trying to see, hey, what are the options available for a given patient? You know, the person who's, hey, this is, you know, de novo disease, this is their first line. Treatment is very different from the one who's on their like fourth or fifth agent and has been, you know, recalcitrant to all those, kind of like what you were saying. I think the other thing that I've um, also been, I think, Urged more towards surgery, is those cases where they're um, candidates for immunotherapy or some other kind of targeted agent that can you know be specific. And sometimes you know for the surgeries, especially since we're able to do the biopsies at the same time, you can send it for any kind of sequencing or genetic testing to figure out if there are actionable markers that can actually result in a, in a better targeted therapy for patients. So, you know, along that same lines, I, I, in general, ask that same question in terms of prog- I use those as kind of surrogates for prognosis because I think they kind of get at the same, you know, answer of, you know, is this somebody who's going to, you know, be able to tolerate your surgery and basically is going to have, you know, potential options after. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And the follow-up to that is uh, you've done a lot of work in molecular genetics, is do you think the molecular profiling of these cancers do you think that is going to be more a part of surgeons decision making process in these I mean, in these situations
2: Yeah I think I mean personally yes I think you know one of the things that you can see if you look at a lot of the brain tumor literature if you look at a lot of um just I think the oncology literature in general you're seeing things being defined by their mutational status by mutational burden by the receptors, you know, for instance, you know, it's not a, you know, in lung cancer, it's not if you have non-small cell lung cancer, it's, you know, do you have an ALK positive, EGFR negative, you know, cancer, MET negative, you know, those things. And I think that in the same respect, you've seen a lot of that transition as, as uh, you know, we've been doing a lot more of these sequencing paradigms. Um, with that in mind, you know, in the future, we could see the same thing as when we look at spinal metastasis, you know, if there's a difference between, for instance, an ER-positive, PR-positive breast cancer patient and one that has a um, ESR mutation, right, and and the way that you can treat those two patients may be different, both in terms of the radiation therapy, in terms of surgical decision-making, um, and then even just, you know, what you can do with them, you know, kind of going back to your whole point about prognosis, so. Yeah, I mean, I think I would
0: completely agree with that. Uh, You know, I've sat down with my pathologist, and he truly believes that we are heading directly towards where we are not doing histologic-specific treatments anymore. It is all about next-generation sequencing. You know, whatever particular, you know, spectrum or or, uh, assay your hospital does, that's what's being used to target Mm -hmm. things. And yes, Mm -hmm. you know, an EGFR... Um, you know, blocker maybe, you know, was found in lung cancer. Mm. But if you have a colon cancer that has that um, that same uh, profile, right. that's what you're going to be put on. Yeah. And I think we're even seeing that move into the sarcoma world. Same yeah. thing with the, a lot of our sarcomas. We're treating it um, much the same way. And, and I, a, again, completely agree with you that what we do and how we treat people matters. I mean, I'm already to the point where if I have a breast cancer patient yep. who is ER, PR positive, mm-hmm. I am extremely likely to do a less invasive separation surgery yep. type approach to them because yep. all I need is to clear their cord and let them get radiated and they're going to heal like gangbusters. Exactly. Exactly. Um, whereas if I have a triple negative breast cancer who's recalcitrant to multiple, multiple lines of treatment. I may, you know, go to, you know, directly to like a spondylectomy.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and it's funny that you bring that up because I think, you know, that has implications for your earlier comment about, you know, multidisciplinary tumor board and the benefit of that. You know, I, I, I know that those of us who kind of do this more frequently, we are more versed in all of these. And I think that, you know, as time goes on for surgeons who may not be as, you know, familiar with all these kind of molecular targeted therapies or, you know, mutations and whatnot, you know, whether or not, um, you know, they're able to um, get that information to make those effective decisions is gonna really come through a tumor board because I think, you know, that's where people are gonna be able to go over all these things and do it, so.
1: Yeah, these are all excellent points. I mean, really excellent points. And one thing that I will share that I learned in my own journey is being a spine surgeon that takes care of a lot of cancer patients is I realized that sometimes the medical oncologists, even though we defer to them, they don't really know either and they're also Mm. sort of making a best guess on prognosis because many of these patients, regardless of the histology, many of these patients in the treatment trials, patients with bony or spinal metastases are often excluded from those studies. And so there is not great data, and we have retrospective surgical series Mm -hmm. looking at that, but there are areas where there are just common knowledge gaps, and so I think that I think the points that both of you brought up today really highlight the challenges and where we are today in terms of discussing with medical oncology, but also realizing that on both sides, you know, there there are areas where of uncertainty.
2: You know, one of the things I I was thinking as, as, uh, you know, we started talking about this is what are the ramifications from a, you know, what do we do as surgeons based on that molecular based on that molecular targeted therapy and and kind of I think you know you recently had your paper that basically showed that you know Fusion rates basically are not necessarily like or the goal of fusion shouldn't be something that uh, We try to aim for in the metastatic spine tumor population, right? Because of survival because of you know all, all of those different things and one of the things that you know, we may see Is that in the future? maybe that paradigm shifts in that if somebody has a let's say an er positive pr positive maybe that's the person that you do try to put you know uh, some kind of uh, arthrodesis type material allograph in that would actually like promote fusion because that's the person who's going to do the long-term survival and so as you think about kind of costs and how you can use your multi- your tumor board recommendations, your genetic markers, all those things to kind of influence some of that decision making of what we actually do in the OR. Um, I was just thinking, you know, from your perspective, just thinking about that paper of kind of how it's very, very like timely now. But I guess my, my question to you is, you know, in the future, you know, how do you see that yeah. kind of evolving? I think that in the future when we have therapies
0: like this, we may not be radiating all these patients postoperatively. Yeah. When they have a predictable, mm-hmm. you know, significant PR or
1: complete response, maybe we don't need radiation. Yeah. Well, thank you for the great discussion. Uh, please look for more content from the NAS section of Spinal Oncology.